0: Small modular nuclear reactors. Sounds kind of cute, doesn't it? The nuclear industry is pushing a smaller is better narrative, conning governments and communities into thinking they're just what's needed to solve the climate crisis. Forget the fact that none actually exists. They're still being aggressively presented and promoted as nothing like the existing nuclear reactors. I mean, they're modular just like Legos. But then a filmmaker who is also a professor of psychology takes on the false narrative that is being pushed to sell us on these mini-reactors, and she tells you that the industry... Pushing for smallness,
1: the theme of small is beautiful, they've really distanced themselves from the failed legacy of the previous generation of nuclear power plants and the nuclear reactors, and have in an interesting way, domesticated and even kind of feminized the image of these small reactors that are in some ways more problematic than the old
0: reactors. Well, when filmmaker and professor Jan Hawken reveals just some of the deceptions behind the push for small modular nuclear reactors... And hones in on the deadly issues already created by the Hanford nuclear site in eastern Washington state and its impact on the Pacific Northwest, you begin to realize once again the extensive lies behind that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot
2: seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what
1: have those boys been drinking? Shrinking, but the activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat—it's the bomb.
0: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine, keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Professor Jan Hawken. She is director of the film Atomic Bamboozle wherein she interviewed physicists, activists, conservationists, and members of the U.S. Northwest indigenous communities to portray a nuclear industry rising quickly while downplaying nuclear power's most crucial and recurring issues, those unresolved and changed by the small modular nuclear reactors. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, NumNets of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear hot seat hot story with Linda Pence Gunter, and more honest nuclear information than emerged from the New Hampshire primary. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 23, 2024, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out this week on the big story, the Doomsday Clock, which represents how close mankind is to total destruction from nukes, climate change, and a wide range of other issues. The 2024 clock was revealed today, Tuesday, January 23rd, by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which generates it. The clock remains set at 90 seconds to midnight, the same as 2023, which is in itself a bit of a disappointment to those of us who think that because of the wars in Ukraine and Israel, things are much worse than they were a year ago. But the biggest disappointment, some would label it a faux pas by the bulletin, was the inclusion as a commentator of Bill Nye, the science guy. The reason for this eludes us all. Here with her take on what happened is Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story.
2: For one bright, shining moment, we were almost spared the embarrassing clown show that is Bill Nye, But alas, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists were able to fix the technical difficulties that had threatened to prevent Nye's appearance during their broadcast on Tuesday, unveiling the new time on the Doomsday Clock. The Doomsday Clock remains at 90 seconds to midnight, just as it was in 2023, and the most perilously close we have ever come to our final demise. After a measured and considered conversation among experts about the various threats from nuclear weapons expansion, wars, the climate crisis, and the runaway chaos that could be caused by artificial intelligence, Nye was invited on as, well, as what exactly? Light entertainment? Twice, he urged us to go ahead and hate him, his age and his background, whatever that is. Knock yourselves out, he said. Say what? We had just listened to a sound analysis of the dangers we face from nuclear-armed countries Russia and Israel conducting wars that could escalate to wider regional conflicts involving other nuclear-armed nations. The upgrades and expansions to the nuclear weapons arsenals being made by the U.S., China, and Russia, the far too easy ability of a U.S. president to launch nuclear weapons, The bellicose threats coming out of North Korea, the imminent devastation from the climate crisis in the wake of our hottest year on record, and the potential of human manipulated AI to unleash new horrors on the world. But Bill Nye thinks it's all about him and his bow tied background. Sadly, things got sillier, undermining what should have been a stark warning about our continued peril. Instead, Nye, an engineer, spontaneously interjected that new nuclear power plants were a good idea, but hindered by politics and nimbyism, not technical challenges, that of course, we should keep our current nuclear power plants running and that fusion was just moments away. His interviewer, physicist Dan Holtz, gently pointed out that fusion was still decades away, then wrapped up the interview at which Nye expressed surprise. What was also a surprise is that no real reason was offered by the bulletin as to why the hands of the doomsday clock did not move closer to midnight, given the additional new nuclear dangers in the Middle East and the threats made by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un that he may engage in a war against South Korea, whether using nuclear weapons or not, we do not know. So it remains to be seen whether the 2024 Doomsday Clock announcement will be remembered for the substance contained in the dire warnings its scientists elucidated in choosing to keep the clock's hands at 90 seconds to midnight, or the ridiculous ego-driven display that followed it. Moving on. This week marked the third anniversary on Monday of the entry into force of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The treaty currently bears 93 signatories, with 70 countries having also ratified it, making them states parties to the treaty. The second meeting of states parties to the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons concluded last December with a firm repudiation of the myth of deterrence. In keeping with this theme, some of my colleagues are preparing to protest the annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit held here in DC at the end of this month. I attended this event once several years ago, It was, needless to say, an appalling experience, like entering some sort of male coven, if there is such a thing. These guys, and they are mostly guys, really, really missed the Cold War. They even fretted about a missile gap with Russia. At any moment, Dr. Strangelove could have made his entrance. One of them, a rather upright military type, conceded to me during a coffee break conversation that really the best solution would be for the United States to be the sole country in possession of nuclear weapons. The only good news was that he clearly didn't actually believe in deterrence, just possibly something even worse. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. You know, I never did take much notice of Bill Nye before, and
0: certainly didn't hate him. But after this stunt, it's on my to-do list. In an ongoing make-good-by-the-bulletin in response to an article they published Why a nuclear weapons ban would threaten, not save, humanity. That got numbnuts a few weeks ago. Two responses have been posted. Nuclear deterrence is the existential threat, not the nuclear ban treaty. And why realism requires that nuclear weapons be abolished. They will be linked. President Joe Biden is dropping his pick to fill the open seat on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission after a handful of Democrats joined Senate Republicans to block the nomination last year. Jeff Barron had held a seat on the five-person federal panel overseeing atomic energy and radiation safety since 2014, with an easy renewal won in 2018. But pro-nuclear advocates, angry over what they saw as Barron's unwillingness to overhaul the regulatory process in favor of building new types of reactor technologies, launched a campaign against the commissioner last year, casting him as a liberal regulator who saw his job primarily as safeguarding the public against the atomic energy industry. The nerve! At his 2017 reconfirmation hearing before the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, Barron said, It is not my job to weigh in on the pros and cons of the merits of nuclear power. It is my job to focus on nuclear safety and security. This is a loss. And the Biden White House has finalized a $1.1 billion budget for Pacific Gas and Electric to keep California's last nuclear power plant, Diablo Canyon, open until 2030. The San Luis Obispo facility was to close in 2025, but Governor Gavin Newsom, who is planning a run at the presidency in 2028 and is already building his allies and his war chest, says that Diablo Canyon is still needed until more renewable energy comes online. No word about where that funding for alternative energy is going to come from. And we will link to an excellent presentation script from esteemed journalist Carl Grossman. Let us eliminate nuclear weapons before they eliminate us. Over to Japan, where Hokuriko Electric Power Company, the operator of the Shika nuclear power plant struck by the massive New Year's Day earthquake, says that it will take more than six months to finish repairing the damage that was caused. In tests, one of three emergency diesel generators for the number 1 reactor at the Sheikah nuclear power station stopped automatically. The emergency generators are designed to operate pumps that circulate seawater to cool nuclear fuel stored at the plant when external power is lost. This failure means trouble has hit part of the plant's last line of safety defense. The quake also caused transformers to malfunction, rendering 2 of the 5 external power lines unusable and leaked more than 23,000 liters of oil. Remember this is all in the wake of an announcement that took place less than 1 hour after the quake, coming from the government's nuclear regulation authority that there were no irregularities identified in nuclear power plants. That jumped to judgment gave the government the lead and the talking points in subsequent stories, but it was not accurate. What it did do, however, was get the jump on the talking points in subsequent articles so that the nothing to worry about here, folks, move right along narrative is the one that got picked up. We'll let you know if anything else shows up. And now...
2: Nuclear hot seat, hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that sound awake.
0: Mmm, seaweed, yummy. You know, those faux potato chip, crunchy, salty, have no calories, but lots of minerals snacks. Soma City in Fukushima Prefecture used to be one of the country's top producers of seaweed until the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that led to the triple meltdown disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant stopped their production. Shipments were resumed in 2018, but total production in 2022 remained at just 15% of the pre-disaster amount, which is why now, whoopee, this season's green labor is the best since the resumption of shipments, and are again being exported in mass amounts, especially to Europe, with not a single word about radioactivity, the release of tritium-contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean in the vicinity of where the seaweed is harvested, and, of course, no warning label on the packaging. Just all part of Japan normalizing what may or may not be normal. And that's why whoever is behind this push to market Fukushima harvested seaweed around the world, you are this week's
2: Nuclear Hot
0: Seed, none that's out week. In Ukraine, the Russian occupiers of the Ukrainian nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia have once again laid landmines around the 6 reactor facility, the largest nuclear facility in Europe. Zaporizhia also lost its immediate backup power supply to the nuclear reactor units for several hours this week. In Belarus, which is closely allied with Russia, the Defense Minister is putting forth a new military doctrine that for the first time provides for the use of nuclear weapons, which Russia provided them with last year. And in France, eight nuclear power reactors last week had to reduce output for a variety of reasons. So much for nuclear reliability. Now, here's this week's featured interview. As pressure mounts in the United States to meet net-zero carbon goals, the nuclear power industry has been making its case for a nuclear renaissance, yet again, to solve the climate crisis. In place of the highly costly reactors that have been shut down across many regions of the country, investors began in the early 21st century to promote small modular nuclear reactors as a technological solution. This week, we talk with Jan Hawken. She is a professor of psychology and director of the documentary Atomic Bamboozle. The 46-minute film portrays a nuclear industry rising quickly while downplaying nuclear power's most crucial and recurring issues, those unresolved and unchanged by small modular nuclear reactors. Hawken interviewed physicists, activists, conservationists, indigenous community leaders, and focused on the lies between the push For small modular nuclear reactors and their reality. We spoke on January 15, 2024. Dr. Jan Hawken, thank you so much for joining us here today on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Great to be here on your fabulous podcast, Libby.
0: Let's start out with a little bit about you. What is your background?
1: I'm a clinical psychologist and professor emeritus at Portland State University here in Oregon. My first career was as a nurse but then uh, went into psychology and most of my career has been in the psychology department at Portland State University and I've been throughout my career also uh, working as a community psychologist. Uh, Much of my field research takes up controversial and kind of contested areas of human work and activity, and I began to use cameras in my field research to get a bigger picture of what's going on in a particular field. I've done projects, documentary projects now in areas of Africa, um, Europe, areas of the U.S., And I've really come to love this medium as a more democratic way, in a sense, a more accessible way of taking on a difficult topic than books and articles, which I still value. But, you know, everyone's a film critic. So when you show a film, uh, people have a lot of opinions about what you include, what you don't include. So this has become my main medium as a scholar, as well as a filmmaker.
0: Tell us some of the topics that you have covered in your previous films. Well, I did
1: one film following a unit of therapists going to Afghanistan, looking at how the issue of mental health issues in that war zone were being handled by the military. It's called Mind Zone, Therapists Behind the Front Lines. That also was during a time when there was a lot of worry and public concern about the impact of repeated deployments on service members. I did one on dairy farmers and the the impact of pressures on farmers to grow or die called Milkman, the life and times of dairy farmers. Um, I did one on drag performance, which was and still is now controversial for many people, showing how their work is a way of Helping people manage their anxieties around sexuality and gender. Um, I did a film, Our Bodies Are Doctors, that follows abortion providers in different areas of work, brings abortion work into everyday healthcare. Um, my most recent films, before Atomic Bamboozle, were two films on climate activism a two-part series called Necessity, looking at the use of the necessity defense as a legal strategy for climate activists using civil disobedience as a strategy to confront the climate emergency. So all of the films have taken up controversial topics as well as work that's not valued in the dominant culture and, and focuses on work, and in many cases, on the work of activism. Or activists.
0: What sparked your interest in doing a film on nuclear? And what drew you to explore specifically the issues around small modular nuclear reactors?
1: Well, this project directly came out of my last two films, the Necessity films, that had a strong Indigenous focus, were guided by Indigenous perspectives on the climate crisis, following tribal leaders and Indigenous activists around that issue. And one of the lead subjects and an associate producer, Kathy Sampson-Cruza, in that last climate film, would always speak about nuclear power. Every time she spoke at a rally, she's well-known here in the Pacific Northwest, she'd say, don't forget about nuclear, including these small modular nuclear reactors that some of
0: the biggest billionaires in the country are promoting. That was one of the points that I think you made very clearly with the visual saying that the people who are behind nuclear power are all billionaires. They're all people with lots of money who are living in cities or areas far away from the impacted communities. And then you would show an area where there were the nuclear cooling towers and you would see a little grouping of a town around it, but clearly that was surrounded by area that was not built up. So we're talking about small towns, groups of people who don't have a lot of power, who don't have a big voice, who maybe are looking at, wow, look at these jobs that pay well, but they pay well in exchange for your genetic future, the future of your children, the future of the planet. And that's not a particularly good swap. That's right.
1: And the subsidies of these industries from the very beginning are phenomenal. And I I do think it's important not to be opposed to government subsidies for public projects, including around clean energy. And of course, the nuclear industry has, has tried to exploit the concept of clean, clean versus dirty oil. But of course, clean is not a term that fits so well with the problems here. I mean, there are a lot of radioactive and toxic effects of industry that are on a certain level could be seen as clean, depending on what you mean by clean. But I think the critique of the industry should not be that they are subsidized, but that we don't benefit from those subsidized. And that the industry, including here in my own state of Oregon, my dealing with new scale has The industry has been unresponsive to community concerns about their products. And if you're going to subsidize an industry, the public has a right to know how those funds are being used, and to whose benefit, and what are the costs, and who's bearing the costs. And I was struck by how much this issue was not on the radar with young environmental activists who I've worked with for years as a filmmaker, and as a supporter of the climate movement. And so I became very curious about how the nuclear industry and the US government was supporting this technology that had such a terrible history of promises failed over and over to be realized, and yet was promoting it as a climate solution. And so I interviewed on 40 or 50 engineers, activists, scientists who had taken up the topic, many of whom did not want to be in a film that was also including activists. But it was very informative in terms of what the strategies and actually the psychology of the nuclear movement was in distancing itself from its own history of problems.
0: I also have a background in psychology. I have a master's in spiritual psychology and worked as a coach, a lot of it with survivors of sexual abuse. That's also my background. And I am fascinated by the psychological take that you have about activists and the movement. What can you tell us about that?
1: I think the work of activists, particularly in recent years where The right wing has gone after the Black Lives Matter movement and social justice activists as troublemakers, as stifling speech and the maligning of progressive activists. And I I thought of this film as partly a way of honoring and learning from the history of anti-nuclear activism, which is a forgotten part for most young people of our history. There's a kind of cultural amnesia about it. It's not as though that history is completely applicable to what's going on now, but there are many insights and the work of the anti-nuclear movement here in the Pacific Northwest, which is part of shutting down the Trojan nuclear plant was I think instructive in orienting us to what's going on now. I was also struck in a lot of the propaganda to support this new generation of small reactors, how the propaganda around it has played on intergenerational dynamics, casting anti-nuclear activists as these old radiophobic people who you know, maybe had a point long ago, but they're behind the times. And young people now are ready to embrace technology um, and all these engineers who are supposed to figure out the problems that remain not even close on our horizon. So I was very interested in how the promotional campaigns that are like advertisements without the warnings that the pharmaceutical industry has to attach to their ads. None of those warnings, but they're just blatant promotional campaigns that do not address in any serious way the problems that are insurmountable. If you look at all of them together in realizing their vision of a vast array of these small modular reactors, In that pushing for smallness, the theme of small is beautiful, they've really distanced themselves from the failed legacy of the previous generation of nuclear power plants and the nuclear reactors and have, in an interesting way, domesticated and even kind of feminized the image of these small reactors that are, in some ways, more problematic than the old
0: reactors Part of the manipulation of the image that I hammer on every week is that they call them small modular reactors and the other N word is missing. They keep the N word nuclear out of what they're saying. So I will refer to them as SMNRs and they make it sound like because they are modular, it's like Legos, cute little Legos. And Clearly, there are a lot of problems with the technology, not the least of which is that it doesn't exist yet.
1: Right. Some have called them PowerPoint designs. Even the design it had was further along than the other designs, New Scale here in Oregon, that it was very proud and trumpeting its status as having gone through the first Nuclear Regulatory Commission approval process now seems to have tanked that they've lost investors, uh, subscribers, and are really struggling to survive. But they've got many competitors out there being promoted.
0: None of whom have an approved design yet. And you do get very much into New Scale. And at the time that you were making the film, New Scale was on the front running edge. They had this contract for six reactors with utah associated municipal power systems known as uamps they were going to be up and running by 2030 and then uamps canceled the contract and suddenly new scale has in the past week let go more than 154 employees nearly 30 percent of their staff their stock has fallen by more than 40 percent and probably It's on its way out. They've also been sued by a group
1: of investors.
0: Oh, that's such good news.
1: Uh (laughs) (laughs) Usually I'm not on the side of investors. And some of it is around these same false promises, misleading promises around contracts. And, you know, of all of their promo material, their TED Talks, their ads, the audience often is flooded with details that are very hard to follow if you're not a physicist. You have to kind of take their word for it with all of the tech talk. And I wanted to, in this film, really distill, you know, what are the main issues? There are four main issues and areas of controversy to take them on in a film where people could get their mind around, you know, what the main issues are and to have a leading physicist, who is an international expert on nuclear power, and the Ramana address
0: them. Go through those four areas and lay them out because they're done very clearly in the film. And it becomes irrefutable that these reactors are a really bad idea.
1: Well, there's costs. The first starts with costs. And I think it's Less compelling now their cost estimates as they were when I started last year. And they were promoting all kinds of figures that were misleading in that, as you said earlier, these module kits, or some people call them like little Lego sets, they're presented in a very friendly way in their investment portfolios, and they offer them as a a kind of a starter set. So you buy a few now and then you add some later. And these starter sets, if you add them up, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out that if you add them all up, you add up a lot of costs and nuclear waste. We look at the cost issues. Second is accidents. Most people are very aware of Fukushima, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, these huge accidents that are in the news a lot and have staggering and tragic consequences. But I also wanted to bring in the everyday problems and regular small-scale accidents that are more episodes, incidents as they call them, in nuclear plants in this country that don't hit the news. It's more common than thought. The third problem taken up is proliferation. This is also an area where there's a lot of fancy footwork on the part of promoters to downplay or deny that proliferation, nuclear proliferation is a problem. There's a lot more to be said about that than what we could put in the film, but plutonium-level radioactive waste is a problem with these small reactors and has not been addressed in terms of safety issues.
0: You make the point quite clearly that these small modular nuclear reactors will actually produce more waste per kilowatt hour than the larger reactors. And that is hugely significant. But I think people think, oh, they're smaller, they'll create less waste. So that actually is the fourth issue is waste,
1: radioactive waste. So proliferation, they're related, but proliferation is also an issue that is important because the way these are being promoted and sold to subscribers around the world, also places where you do not have the kind of state structure regulatory apparatus in place that would protect against potential sabotage or other uses of nuclear material. So waste is an issue that is very much with us, an existing legacy and an ongoing legacy of nuclear power. I didn't realize until I started this project that when the Trojan nuclear plant was closed and decommissioned in 2006 in Oregon, the radioactive waste were left there on site. In about 30, they call them casks, and they are stored on site in nuclear power plants all around the country, including those where they're being decommissioned. And so the disposal of, of radioactive waste which was thought to be a problem that could be handled with a deep geological repository, or now there's talk of interim storage facilities. That is not a problem that politicians are even talking about anymore because nobody wants them permanently disposed in what's considered the gold standard, a deep geological repository in any area of this country.
0: There are a lot of issues surrounding both the proposed permanent storage site in Yucca Mountain, which will never happen. It's it's a legal fiction so that they can say that they have interim storage sites down in New Mexico and West Texas. And they can call them interim and get away with a certain sliding around on legalities because, well, there's yucca, we'll eventually get it to yucca, but it's never going to go to yucca because yucca will not happen. And the waste will undoubtedly, unless something drastic happens, just be abandoned in those places in eastern New Mexico and west Texas. So that brings up a whole other series of issues. But I want to bring this back to... The focus on the Northwest in your film, because atomic bamboozle really creates a different kind of a picture of what both the nuclear situation was and the activist situation was and continues to be in that area. So you've talked several times about the closure of the Trojan nuclear reactor in Oregon, which is not an issue that I've even heard mentioned in 12 and a half years of nuclear hot seat. This is the first time. And from there, what happened regarding nuclear facilities elsewhere, most specifically the Hanford site?
1: Well, there are a couple reasons for focusing on the Northwest and this region and the both the history of Trojan and also the Hanford nuclear reservation in Washington. First, there, there are budget restrictions. I didn't have budget to go all over the place. But sometimes lack of budget can lead to creative ways of looking at a problem. And one thing I have learned working with indigenous groups and tribal leaders in recent years is that it's important to ground work in place, attachment to place, where you get a feeling of place. And I wanted not just to bring into focus the horrors of this industry and its tragic and failed promises, but also to make the Columbia River and the region around Hanford and here in this region near Trojan, to make the place itself a place that we love and protect and the feeling of our attachment to place, a central part of the film. So there's a lot of imagery of the gorge of the area. Even at Hanford, there's beautiful footage of what that place means. And one of the principles in the climate psychology literature, of which it informs some of my work, is that people are moved to act through an attachment to place and a love and concern for protecting a place. I wanted that ethos to guide the film. So there's a lot that's beautiful in the film, as well as focusing on the propaganda and the destructiveness of nuclear energy and its legacy.
0: The footage of the river itself is so beautiful and so compelling. And by bringing in the indigenous people from the confederated tribes of the Umatia Indian Reservation to speak about it from their perspective, that it's life, it's sustenance, it's part of the balance of the earth, really gave an opposing voice to something that doesn't always get it, which is nature and the natural world and the natural balance of things. And especially in Hanford, for all the coverage that there has been, This one was particularly poignant because you did bring forth such love of the land and the pictures of the salmon and the people boating on it and the clarity of the waters. That was all delicious. And then to think that opposing it is this horrific technology that's just going to make billionaires into trillionaires who have $4.1 million cars. That's actually the son of somebody who runs Holtec. And the opposition could not be clearer. And what we're fighting for could not be clearer. So in terms of the film getting out to the people who most need to see it, how has that been going? Where has it been seen? How have you been getting it out in front of audiences? Well,
1: we've pursued a a grassroots strategy. And actually, the length of the film, four to six minutes, was intentional to make the film part of a program where people watch the film and then there's a panel that includes local experts and activists. Um, I'm there as much as I can, sometimes remotely, sometimes in person. But part of the reason I became a documentary filmmaker as an academic was films can be like a classroom experience where Everyone is together and has the same experience and responding to it, bringing their questions, sometimes their criticisms. And it's a way of kind of holding a problem in mind that people often want to push out of mind very quickly. Radioactivity by its very nature is invisible. It's not palpable in the same way fossil fuels are that are choking so many forms of life in the planet produce these fires, heat waves, and pollution, radioactivity, unless it breaks into consciousness through something like Three Mile Island often is out of view. And even the burial of the waste is out of view, even close to me, you know, here in Portland. So I wanted the film to be long enough to hold a lot of the main concerns that people are organizing around to oppose this new wave of nuclear reactors but also short enough that it allows time for comments discussion of what's going on in in the particular area where it's being screened and for questions because most people know very little about this legacy other than the big events that break into the news but there's a kind of cultural amnesia around that history so I wanted that history and how to learn from that history to be center stage, to show the film at schools, churches, theaters. We've had, I think, 27 screenings so far, and I finished it in March. A lot of the screenings have been in you know public libraries, as well as schools and theaters. I'm showing it this week at the People's Forum in Manhattan by, that is hosted by Science for the people. And so these gatherings are a big part of why we made this film as an educational and also a public education and organizing tool. You know, if you watch something online by yourself, kind of making dinner, going in and out of whatever you're watching, but I like the idea and have been committed for some time to documentaries as a place where people come together to have an experience with the film and then respond
0: to it. 27 screenings in less than a year since you've completed the film is quite extraordinary. Yes, and I've been on the road a lot this year with this project, yeah. Have the bookings come from outside people learning about the film and coming to you? Has this been part of a promotional campaign that you've been able to launch in a particular direction? What's been the mechanism of it? It's been primarily
1: through these networks of anti-nuclear groups, No Nukes West. There are a lot of them around the country. The Nuclear Education Information Services in Chicago, the Sierra Club has had a number of screenings and will this year as well through their national anti-nuclear campaign within the Sierra Club. And I wanted to produce something that activists would want to show people who've been doing this work, submitting their testimony and, at various hearings, government hearings, producing working papers. But unless you're very motivated, a lot of the webinars and papers that are produced are hard to get through. They require a very motivated audience. So I wanted to create an aesthetically satisfying and watchable film. That would support that work that continues throughout the country. And of course, in Canada and other places in the world as well that are fighting this industry that is very aggressive. I mean, the Internet is awash with promos on, you know, the new revolutionary nuclear mini plants.
0: That's also another point of it. Since NuScale has been going down the tubes with small modular reactors being associated with them, within two weeks, the press releases coming out, I don't consider them news stories, press releases coming out from the World Nuclear Association and World Nuclear News shifted to calling them mini-reactors. The SMR narrative suddenly evaporated because people think, SMR, oh, isn't that that company that went under and couldn't do it and lost the contract and now blah, 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 their stock prices are going down. They've got focus groups, they've got money, they've got all the power. But what we've got is an interconnect of, as you are saying, motivated people, intensely either aware or willing to make others aware of these issues to help get the word out. So I'm wondering, in those places that you've been part of the film being presented, you've been part of the follow-up and the discussion, what has been the audience response? And what, if anything, has come out in terms of forward momentum to the activism in that area? It's hard to gauge
1: at this point. The Sierra Club, the National Sierra Club, has been able to boost the group that has been working as a committee around nuclear issues, which was a very low profile part of the Sierra Club's mission, has been able to boost the profile of this as a part of the Sierra Club's mission. And so this year, there's a commitment to having more education and organized opposition to nuclear power in general, closing down the plants that we still have. They're 94 five or so of reactors in the U.S., not near as many as the industry had anticipated to be in place by the end of the 20th century. I think the Sierra Club has been one place where they've been able to use the film to make this a higher priority for the club. There are a lot of teachers who are beginning to look at nuclear power is an ethical issue, as well as a scientific issue. I'm working with a group of teachers at DuPaul University who've been working on this issue for a long time, the ethics of nuclear power and nuclear energy and its legacies. And so I feel like I'm contributing something to those educational campaigns and to the organizing campaigns. It was disappointing. In Illinois, there was a campaign to reject the legislation, to overturn a moratorium on nuclear power there. And there were a number of screenings and events. But even if you lose the battle, then that's part of the legacy of the fight against nuclear. That is part of the legacy and an important lesson of the fight against Trojan nuclear power plant here in Oregon was there were repeated ballot measures over 20 years, organizers would go back to the drawing board and rewrite a legislation to keep fighting. And so it, there are a lot of very powerful forces, just as there are in the fossil fuel industry, and they're not overturned overnight for sure.
0: I know that listeners would be very interested in being able to access a copy of this film to see. Is there an online distribution or a streaming platform that is planned, or are they just going to have to either find someplace where it's booked or book it themselves? Those are all
1: options, yes. So we were very happy to be included in the International Uranium Film Festival that's on tour in the U.S., This year, we're scheduled for a number of those cities, and we hope to be in other cities. So going on to the International Uranium Film Festival, their website, you can see the U.S. tour. We're also screening on February 22nd to the 27th at the Colorado Environmental Film Festival, and I'll be there for that. But at following the in-person screening, they're having a virtual screening, so people can go on to that festival and watch it from any place, I think, in North America. And then on our website, atomicbamboozle.com, there's a link to host a screening and for a modest fee. You can schedule a screening for a group in your area. It's a pretty modest fee, depending on the size of the group. But it's a way of distributing and making the film available enough so that most people who wanted to have a screening were able to work out something to make that possible, but also to stay with our mission of using the film to discuss the issues and what are, what's going on in your area and what are the asks for activists or concerned citizens in your area. So it won't be just online to watch online for probably at least a year, because this is our strategy this year for our impact campaign.
0: Anything else you feel you would like to add at this time about the film, about the distribution, or anything at all?
1: I've really been both concerned and encouraged by the number of young people who come to screenings and have requested, I'm showing it, soon at University of Oregon at a class there on campus. And we've got a number of campus screenings because the industry is really targeted. And I tried to show in the film by how the industry and the federal government has provided funds for millennials for nuclear programs around the country called millennials for nuclear. And in fact, the film starts with that line from Rick Scott, who says, we're going to make nuclear cool again, and I try to show how they try to make nuclear cool again. So I've been very encouraged by the young people who've said they knew nothing about this, and are beginning to learn from that history and to understand that this is part, it's not just one more horror story we face among so many, but it's part of the overall power of extractive industries that have a particular impact on Native communities, tribal communities who bear this legacy and live in the graveyards of these industries long after they've moved on. And so I've really wanted the film to be understood as part of a broader project of environmental justice and not just one more thing to worry about. At one of the screenings at a theater in Vancouver, a woman came with her 12-year-old daughter who came up to me afterwards. I said, what did you think of the film? And she said, I liked it, but are we all going to blow up? And I said, well, there are a lot of us. I said, there were some scary things in this movie, but there are a lot of people working together together. And that's why we're here tonight, is we're working together to make sure that doesn't happen and to make the world a much safer place. And she smiled.
0: Professor and Dr. Jan Hawken, your film Atomic Bamboozle is a great addition to the ever-growing library of films that speak the truth to power about what really happens with nuclear. We here at Nuclear Hot Seat wish you every success with us. Keep us informed as to your progress so that we can let others know. And for now, thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby, for having me with you. It's been great to talk with you. Professor Jan Hawken, director of the film Atomic Bamboozle. We'll have links up to the Colorado Environmental Film Festival, where the film will be shown in person in February and then made available online on a streaming platform. We will also have information about it appearing as part of the International Uranium Film Festival's 2024 U.S. tour, which will include screenings in Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland. It will also be shown at The Mothership, the International Uranium Film Festival in Rio. That information will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 657.
1: Activists, Activists,
2: activists, shout-outs, shout-outs, shout-outs.
0: Following up with more information about the International Uranium Film Festival, the Diné people are inviting all of us to be part of the film festival when it appears at the Navajo Nation Library and Museum in Window Rock, Navajo Lands, on March 7th and 8th. According to Norbert Suchenek, the festival's director and co-founder, we will be showing important, eye-opening films about risks and consequences of uranium mining, the use of nuclear power, nuclear arms, and nuclear weapons. We will have a link up to where you can get more information on these screenings. It will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 657. A bit of an ovation to Ian Zabarte principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians, and secretary of the Native Community Action Council. Along with Karen Pettit of Nevada Desert Experience and Aria of the Sekhmet Temple in Cactus Springs, Nevada, the three hauled a mock high-level radioactive waste cask as a float in the 2024 Las Vegas Martin Luther King Day Parade. This was to highlight not only Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King's but the entire civil rights movement's little-known but glorious anti-nuclear legacy. And next Tuesday, January 30th, our friends in northern Saskatchewan will kick off a four-webinar series, Keepers of the Waters, about uranium mining issues in northern Saskatchewan. As they write, While many people have been busy in survival mode and exhausted from the pandemic, wars around the world, and extreme rising costs of living, Uranium mining lobbyists and governments have been taking advantage, passing industry-favorable laws that will further degrade and threaten freshwater systems already desperately overburdened by farming and mining use and wastewater production. The four webinars will be on indigenous resistance to uranium mining, small modular nuclear reactors and consent in Saskatchewan, what you haven't been told, health impacts of uranium mining on indigenous bodies, and decolonizing the industrial approach to mining our traditional lands. No registration is required, and of course, I will provide the link at NuclearHotSeat.com. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 23, 2024. You know, there's no reason for you to miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, because we make it easy for you to receive it every week via email as soon as it posts. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, the yellow box is right there, pops up, you cannot miss it. Put in your first name and email address, and as a result, every week, you will get one email, I don't bug you, just one, with the link and a short description of the show's content. That also puts you on the database and Google algorithms like that. So help a girl out and help yourself. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, yellow box, you know what to do. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything at all. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2024, Libby Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat and Hardest Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that the last thing anyone who opposes nukes wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There you have it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat